Well, not only do I love preaching through books of the Bible, which we do here, I love starting new books of the Bible. We are beginning this morning to look at the book of Philippians together called Gospel Joy. We'll be looking probably for about four months, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to take us through the Christmas season into the beginning of next year. Um, after that, we might be looking to do a major prophet would be next. We have never done that here. I think uh, since I've been the lead teaching pastor, I think we've been through about 13 or 14 books, both Old and New Testament, different genres, and, and uh, I don't, we've never done a, a major uh, prophet. So we're looking at Isaiah. But meanwhile, we're in the book of Philippians. And, and, we, and we do this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because what we're looking for, what we need to know first and foremost, is what was God saying through the apostolic writers, through the writers of the New Testament. What was God saying through them to the churches in that day, in that context? We need to know that before we bring application and implica- uh, the implication applications of what God would speak to us today. Every context of every book is important. But Philippian is unique. Right? It's, it's, it's especially important because there are so many well-known, memorable verses in the book of Philippians. Probably more than any New Testament book, I would think, anyway. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God is working in you both the will and do of his good pleasure. I count everything as loss. Everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Our citizenship is in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Some of them are not only memorable, but some of them are also taken out of context. Probably more in this book than I know of any other book. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a great verse. But all things does not mean the surgeon at Albany Med who's in a delicate situation get like, get Lou on the phone. He's holding that verse dearly, right? So what does it mean, all things? We'll look at that. Or chapter 4, verse 19, another one, my, my favorite all-time take-out-of-context verse. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. People take that to mean that, that God is now obligated to, to meet every need that I have in every circumstance I find myself in. That's what it says. Every need of yours, according to his riches and glory. Well, by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 19, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find the church that was poor, hurting, suffering, and persecuted, but extremely generous. Out of their poverty, out of their suffering, they were giving and generous church. So, before we quote that verse, we're buying our third vacation home. There's nothing wrong about third vacation home. Go and buy them. Just don't use that verse. Okay? That's not the context. Okay? So sometimes these verses take on a life of their own, man. You know, they, they're separated from context. They become emotionalized and really emptied of their meaning. So as we go through this book, as we study this book together, hopefully we'll bring some of that back to its context. We'll really see what the Lord is saying through this book to the church and to us. The book of Philippians is a wonderful book. A wonderful book of wonderful truth. God, uh, Paul, uh, God speaks through Paul about his sovereignty in, in our salvation. The person and work of Christ, chapter 2, the Christological beauty of the, of the hymn of Christ coming down from glory, taking on human flesh and dying on the cross. The imputed righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. It speaks about our sanctification, our citizenship. But first and foremost, in the book of Philippians, is the theme of joy. The word joy, the word rejoicing over 16 times in four chapters. Also in the book of Philippians, Jesus is named either Jesus Christ, Christ, Lord, uh, named him in this book over 50 times in four short chapters, 104 verses, 16 times joy rejoicing, 50 times Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord, and the word gospel, something new I found out, 
appears more in Philippians than any other letter per 100 words. Paul writes about this glorious nature of the gospel that believers must defend and declare. And the book of Philippians has been known as the book of joy. But you know, even joy can be taken out of context. Yes, joy is a major motif in Philippians, but, it, but, but joy is not like just hanging out there. Like this book is just about joy. Actually, it's not, it's not just hanging out there. It's actually connected to something. It's actually connected to someone. Philippians calls us to a particular joy. The joy Paul will experience and show us while suffering, while facing persecution, and even death, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. It's not some superficial happiness, but, but a deep theological truth, which is actually, in the text, when we get there, commanded by God. We're commanded by God. Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod said this, a joyless life would have been a sinful life. Interesting quote. Joy, eternal joy is found in Jesus Christ. It is found in the gospel. It is found in the sharing and spreading of the gospel. I know the presidential season has brought such great joy to so many people. You know, as we're studying the book, you're wondering, you know, should I get my joy in Jesus? Should I get my joy in November 3rd? I'm not really sure. You know, it's funny. We laugh, cry, whatever you want to do. But God is good because we have been talking, the pastoral team has been talking about going through this book a year ago because we thought we'd be in our edition by now, or at least close to going in. I'm like, let's do Philippians, man. The joy of the gospel, the joy of Christ, joy of spreading the gospel. We got our new building. Let's do Philippians come September 2020. God had a different plan. By God's providence, things have been, things are very different. Between the virus, the shutdown, the upcoming election, we're in a place where I think we need to understand, as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy, real joy, is not based on anything this world can offer us. Real joy is not based on anything this world can give you. We're not against seeking joy. We're not against seeking satisfaction. We're not against uh, seeking the light. The Apostle Paul tasted of the, of the everlasting fountain of joy, satisfaction, and delight in only the, Jesus, his person, and his work. Real and eternal joy is not found in the things of this world. It's not even found in the gifts of our Father, but in the gift giver in God alone. How appropriate and timely, then, is the message of this book. We need to hear this message this morning. We need to heed this message this morning. So we're going to be on this trajectory journey of pursuing gospel joy together. And let's begin, as we always do with New Testament books, or any book of the Bible, Old Testament as well, is getting some context. So if you don't like context, I've said this before, you don't like history, you don't like context, just go to sleep, wake you up when it's over, because that's where we're going for the next 20, 30 minutes, okay? So First thing is the city. Let's think through some important things about the city of Philippi. Okay? And, and you know, I may not have to say this, but I'm going to anyway. It's a real city, like real people. You know, with struggles and hardships and difficulties that you and I face every day. You know, the circumstance or the, or the things that are going on in our life may be different. We have cars breaks down. We have power outages. But they, they, there's real people struggling with real issues. Families and, and neighbors and friends and jobs, like anybody else. And what you find in the book of, of Philippians is not uh, this, this, this little epistle. is not a, a letter written like this theolog theological treatise like you do in, in maybe in Romans. What you have here is an apostle, a pastor who loves church planter, who loves the people. And, and the people love him. And you're going to see this mutual love toward one another. And I want to encourage you, as we jump into this letter, as we look at the city, I want to encourage you to read this letter, this, this little epistle. You, you could read the entire four chapters of the book of Philippians in the same amount of time it takes you to save 15% of your car insurance. Which takes how long? 15 minutes? And how much do you save? 15%. 
This little book is wonderful. And, it's, and the city that this book was written to is in Europe, northeastern section of the Roman providence of Macedonia, northern Greece today. I have a map. I know out there you may not be able to see it as well, but your Bibles have maps in the back. You can look at the second missionary journey of Paul. Um, so it's about, it's, so here is, if you could see it, Asia. Okay. Europe, Macedonia. Right here is Philippi. Okay. Italy's over here, Sicily. Okay, that kind of gives you, I'll give you some more information about it. Um, So Philippi here in the box, it's about 800 miles to Rome. Okay, that's important. Rome is in power. Uh, About 800 miles to Rome. It's in northern Greece. Um, Also next to Philippi right here, there's Neapolis. I'll, I'll circle it. Go slow. There you go. It's about 10 miles away from Philippi. And the reason why I point that out, it is a very important seaport. But goods coming in through that seaport and straight through uh, Philippi, okay? Um, Philippi is known for lots of things like natural resources, timber, metal, especially gold. Um, Around 359, 358 B.C., a man by the name of uh, Philip of Macedon gained control of that area. Obviously, he named it after himself, Philippi, Macedonia. Um, He dreamed of uniting Greece and taking over the world, but he he got killed. I think he was assassinated, actually. But his father, Philip of Macedon's father, is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great became in power and made the little city of Philippi a, a, a showpiece for Greek culture. Rome comes into power. Roman army conquers Macedonia, 168 B.C. There's a civil war in 44 B.C. And then you have this settlement in Philippi of Roman soldiers. So it becomes a very Roman type of city, kind of a, a, a prominent Italian uh, presence. A few years later, a man by the name of Octavia conferred upon Philippi here all the rights of Roman citizenship, if you're from that city. So Roman citizenship is very important. They, they were superpowers. I mean, if you were a Roman citizen, you know, you were top you were top dog, okay? So they conferred upon this city the same rights, the same benefits as a Roman citizen, someone who actually lived in Rome. There were, the, this colony was Roman citizenship. In fact, in chapter 16, when we read about Paul's mission there, we'll get there, um, one of the complaints against Paul's preaching of the gospel is they have brought customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept. That's in Philippi. Also, just so you know as well, you probably can't see it here. So you have the Adriatic Sea here. You have another seaport here. And now you really can't see it. The Ignatian Way is right there. Okay? So the reason why I show you that is Philippi was a major, one of the first cities that you went through to get from the east over here to the west, Italy. There's a major route. So all the people in the West would cross over, come through the Ignatian Way, go into Philippi, and then take the, the you know, they didn't, they didn't, you know, they walked, horses, whatever, obviously, and they would take the way into Rome, the city, the major city of that day. So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of goods, very major and very important city, um, was Philippi, just, just so you know. Language, mostly Latin, some Greek. Um, the city had, like all the other cities of antiquity, had all kinds of Greek gods in them that they would worship. Uh, they had many gods uh, that they worshipped, the gods of Egypt as well. But what was centered, though, in Philippi was the emperor cult. Remember, we talked about that uh, before. But Caesar was given the name Lord. And you could see, since emperor worship was so vibrant there, how scandalous it was for Paul to write in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, that, that every tongue on earth, above the earth, everyone will bow their knee, right? And confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. He's telling the Philippian church, not Caesar. Jesus Christ is Lord only to the glory of God the Father. How, how, how radical that was. Now, the city also had a very few Jewish people in it. They were, they were expelled. There was persecution earlier. Um, in fact, it takes 10 men to start a synagogue. Uh, Paul goes to preach there. There's no synagogue. Paul, that's, normally, Paul would show up in a city, find a synagogue, and preach there on Saturday. 
In Philippi, there is none. And most scholars believe there wasn't a very strong Jewish population there. That's the city. You're going to love this, okay? If you were bored with that, I hope this will wake you up. Turn to Acts 16. So we kind of know, which is really cool, we kind of know a little bit about this church. Don't you want to? I want to know about this church. Paul is on his second missionary journey around 51 A.D. Christ rises from the dead, 30, 33 A.D. 20 years, 18, 20 years later. He's on his second missionary journey. He had just finished preaching in Asia. He has come back to Antioch. Uh, Antioch was, uh, was, I don't know how many miles, but north of Jerusalem. It kind of was the the centerpiece of missions back then. It was a church that used to send the missionaries out. It became like the the mother church of of, of missionary, uh, the sending out of, of people to go preach the gospel. Paul had returned back to Antioch after preaching the gospel in Asia. Churches were planted. People got saved. Uh, it was just a great time. Him and Barnabas returned to the churches, uh, returned back to Antioch and say, man, it was a great missionary journey. All these people got saved. It, it, was, it was, you know, just an awesome time. Um, and they reported back. So they decided, Barnabas and Paul, that it went so well. Let's go back to Asia, Asia Minor, and let's check on all the churches we planted. Sounds like a good idea. So Barnabas and Paul decide, let's, let's go back and see. Barnabas turns to a man by the name of John Mark, who had bailed out on the first missionary journey, kind of got homesick and went home. And Barnabas says, you know, son of encouragement, that's what his name means, says to John Mark, you know what? Come on, we'll give you another chance. Let's go. I know you abandoned us the first time, but let's go. Paul's like, no, I don't think so. I ain't taking him. Barnabas is like, yeah, we're taking him. And Paul's like, I'm not taking him. The Bible says that they had a sharp disagreement. You ever had a disagreement? Not in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, in the Bible. Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. And Barnabas and Paul go, you know what? We're never going to agree. You go your way, I'll go my way. They said, okay, that sounds good. So Barnabas takes John Mark. They go in one direction. Paul takes Silas and head out toward Asia. That's where we pick up the story. While they are, if you look at chapter 16, hopefully you have your Bible open. While, chapter 16, verse 1, Paul, come, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. They spoke well of him, verse 2. All the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now he's going back to Asia Minor. He runs into Timothy, and Timothy becomes a lifelong friend and kind of a son of Paul. He takes him on his wing, and, and as the story goes on, he said, I want to take, verse 3, of chapter 16, I'm taking Timothy with me. So Timothy and Silas head out to the churches in Asia Minor. Okay? Verse 6. They went through the region of uh, Phygia, Galatia, and it says, as they're going through the churches, they were forbidden. Hope you have your Bible. I'll have the verses up. Chapter 16 of Acts, verse 6. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They're in Asia Minor. They, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Verse 7. And when they came up to Mysia, they're moving northwest. They attempted to go through Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, synonymous here. Third person of the Trinity. Did not allow them. They stopped again. So, verse 8. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Okay, you see what's going on here. The apostles like, let's go. We're going back to these churches. Let's go back to the church planting and see how they're doing. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. And Paul's like, okay, yeah, well, let's go this way. And Jesus says, no, you're not going there either. Okay. Now, I don't know about you. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if he got an audible or if, you know, his car broke down four times. He's like, you know, we're never going to get there. I don't know. But I know one thing. I hope. That he isn't as hard-headed as I am when God wants to change my direction. Because it hurts. I can be very determined. No comment. Okay. I could be very determined. When God changes direction, I'm like, he's like, keep banging your head against the wall. Let me know when you're done. Okay? So I don't know how that happened, but he's like, you're not going that way. Verse 9. Paul's in Troas, and he, he saw a vision. A man was pleading with him, come to Europe. 
Help us, verse 9. Chapter 16, verse 10. Paul had seen the vision, immediately sought to go to Macedonia. He's saying, look, come over to Macedonia, verse 9. And Paul's like, okay, let's go. He concluded that God had called him to preach the gospel to Macedonia. Okay? And what does Paul do? Verse 10, verse 11. They set sail from Troas to Neapolis to where? Philippi. He obeys the call. And what you find here in that verse is the very first record of mission evangelism in Europe. Right there in that verse. You go down to verse 13. What Paul does, usually went to the synagogue, didn't, didn't have a synagogue there. Verse 13. On the Sabbath day, rather than going to synagogue, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. All right, we heard there's a place of prayer going on on Saturday. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. All right, you all following me, right? Okay, again, no synagogue, they go to a place. Now look what happens, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, probably a proselyte to Judaism, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, saying, listen, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She kept bugging him. And then finally at the end it says, and she prevailed upon us. She gets saved. The Lord opens her heart. That's what happens in salvation. The gospel is preached, proclaimed. The Lord opens the heart. We respond, salvation has come. Whoop, go back one. Go back to the first slide, would you? Now, it gets better. Look what happens next. Uh, I, I just love it. As they're going to the place of prayer, look at verse 16. We met a slave girl, right? So they're, they're moving on. They, they run into an unnamed slave girl. She's demon-possessed. She's a slave of demons, and she has this fortune-telling business, and the people and the men who have her trapped in slavery are making lots of money. Verse 16, we're going to the place of prayer. We met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and crying out, screaming, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Finally, Paul gets annoyed, turns to her and says, What? I command you. Verse 18, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, the slave girl owner, not happy. Right? Not impressed. I just lost all my money. So they call the Roman officials. They beat him. They beat Paul. And they put him in jail. This is, this is the church plan. And they beat him and they, and they put him in jail. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. Um, yeah, verse 22. <laughs> the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Then they had them inflicted with blows upon them. They threw them into prison, ordered the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were yelling and screaming they want out. No. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the prisoners were listening to them. Do you hear those guys? Are they singing in there? Right? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds was unfashioned. When the jailer woke and, woke and saw that the prisoners, the doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself. You lose a prisoner, you die. So he's like, oh, let, me, let, me, let me get this done now. I'll just kill myself. He supposed that the prisoner had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're here. Jailer called for the lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And yes, he asked the most important question any human being can ask. Then he brought them out and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe, trust, rely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them 
to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour, this prison guard, washed their wounds, baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What can we say about this church? This assembled body of Christ. The first follower of Christ is a woman, especially in that day, a somewhat powerful businesswoman with lots of money, probably bankrolling the church, a slave girl who's demon-possessed, and a prison guard who beats prisoners and everyone's house and him gets saved. That's my kind of church, right? That's a cool church. Let's look at the circumstances. So Paul, just so you know the background story. We're going to get to verse 1 and 2. We'll get there. The letter's written around 60, 62 AD. What just took place that I just read to you is 10 years earlier. Paul now is not visiting Philippi. He's now in jail. He's incarcerated in Rome. He's in prison, or he's at least under house arrest. He's been in prison on trumped-up charges. He's waiting trial to go to trial before Caesar in Rome. And make a note of that, okay? Make a note of that. Paul is chained, literally chained, day and night with Roman soldiers. No privacy, no privileges, under house arrest for at least what we know about two years. He's waiting for a trial to happen and his outcome could very possibly be execution. While he's in prison in Rome, 10 years after he planted Philippi, he receives this wonderful, generous gift from the Philippian church by a man named Epaphrodites. Got a lot of babies being born here. There's a boy's name for you. Epaphrodites. Clearly, Paul receives, Epaphrodites received this gift. It's like an, a personal embodiment of, of this gift with, with money and finances to help Paul. Meanwhile, Paul gets this person, Epaphrodites, with, with help. And we learn in chapter 2 that while Epaphrodites is in Rome, we'll get there in chapter 2, he gets really sick and almost dies. And I love that passage because it says that God had mercy on him and he lived. It wasn't like I named it and claimed it. Send me $4 and I will make sure. You know, it's like God had mercy on Epaphroditus. Paul's concerned, Epaphroditus' concerned. The church finds out their concern. And you see this mutual love between Paul, the Philippian church, and this man named Epaphroditus. Something else interesting in this letter in Philippians is that Paul does not open the letter with, I'm an apostle, as he does many of his other letters. There is no mention of his apostolic authority. There's so much love and generosity and respect for the apostle that he does not start as he did in Galatians. Remember, we read that book in Galatians that he's like, I'm an apostle by God. He did it. You know, he's the one that gave it to me. Nobody else did it. And you know what? You're deserting the gospel. And, uh, you know, I got a problem with that. No, you don't see none of that in Philippians. It's this joyful letter. It's this communication that he has with the people that love him and he loves them. It's a heartfelt letter to, to this church. that wasn't perfect. There's no perfect church. But you don't see any of the real rebukes that you see in some of his other letters. In fact, they're, they're experiencing growth. They're experiencing gospel joy. He's reminding them of their gospel joy. And he's rejoicing with them in the work that they're doing in the gospel. Over a hundred times in his four chapters... He uses pronouns, personal pronouns, I, me, and my. Not talking about how great he is, but how loving and thoughtful and caring and compassionate he was for them. And he writes this letter with, with a couple of themes. As I said, the most prominent one is gospel joy. Now think with me for a minute, church. Paul knows about struggles. Paul knows about heartaches. Paul knows about persecution. He's been beaten, rejected. He suffered beatings by rods. He was stoned, dragged out of cities, persecuted more than any of us have ever been persecuted before. So I don't like to compare your struggles, my struggles. You know, my struggles are more than your struggles. We all have our struggles. But I think 
We can, we can, we must say that if Paul went through all of this, he's chained, he's in prison to a soldier. He's experiencing not only hardship and suffering and difficulty, but he don't know if he's going to be executed or not. If he could say rejoice in the Lord always, I think we can rejoice in the Lord always. See, we must distinguish between joy and happiness. Happiness is contingent many times on your circumstances. Things go well, I'm happy. Things go down the tubes, up in flames, I'm not so happy. William Barclay reminds us that happiness comes from the root hap, which means chance. Happiness, human happiness is by chance if things go our way. But, family, Christian joy. On the other hand, John Piper says this, is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word of God and the work of Christ in the world. Rick Warren says this about Christian joy. Joy is this settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and determined choice and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. What you'll find in the book of Philippians is just that. That joy is this heartfelt affection produced by the Holy Spirit. Remember Galatians, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Joy is a heartfelt affection produced by the Holy Spirit and is pursued and sustained as we savor and delight and find our satisfaction in the beauty and glory of Christ in the gospel in any and all circumstances we find ourselves in. Remember what, Jesus, remember what it said about Jesus in Hebrews 12 too. For Jesus, it says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross. It wasn't the joy of execution. It was what was on the other side, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Gospel joy, let me make this really clear, does not remove pain. Gospel joy does not remove suffering and stress. Gospel joy is the foundation that sustains us in it. Sometimes we look through our circumstances and, and we'll look into the gospel through our circumstances when we should be looking at gospel, Christ, the joy of the gospel as we see our circumstances. I said this last week, that the gospel, his name is Jesus, is the highest and supreme display of the glory of God. His, his infinite value, his incalculable worth, his immeasurable greatness. And when God gets glory, we get what, family? Joy. Our salvation is for the glory and infinite enjoyment of God. Because God's overflowing joy in his own glory as he displays his glory in all that he does is the source and the basis of our joy. Paul, as we will see, wants us to pursue and experience joy in gospel, joy in Christ, joy in God. So as we go through Philippians and learn how to pursue gospel joy, we will find also one of the themes in this book is unity, that we must Pursue it together, family, as a church. From the depth of fellowship that Paul and Philippians had, they shared in the gospel, they shared in this joy. Kent Hughes writes this, Philippians evokes a particular joy. as the joy of Christ and a joy from Christ. It is a joy that effervesces, bubbles up in the dark places of life. It is available for those in Christ who stand together as they partner in the gospel, in the fellowship of the gospel, end quote. One of the other circumstances, I just want to mention two more and we're going to move on. Paul, as I said earlier, it's a wonderful letter. He takes the occasion and writes this letter and he wants to thank the Philippian church for sending Paphroditus, for sending uh, support, love, loyalty, uh, supplies for Paul. No other church, he says in chapter 4, gave like you did. Also, circumstantially within this letter, there's a background. We'll see when we get to chapters 3 and 4 that there is a real concern of Paul on false teaching. There's some false teachers probably trying to infiltrate the church. And then there is some disunity in chapter 4 with two women in the church. He's calling them to preserve and to preserve unity around the gospel, retaining their joy. And when we get the gospel right, we get joy. When we center the gospel on the gospel, we get unity. Okay? So that's really important as we see that. So, one last thing. If you have your Bibles, 
chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. I just want you to see this, this, this unity even more. And we'll look at it more next week. Chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 4 says this. Well, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, you all, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word partnership me is the word koinonia. You probably heard that term before. Koinonia is not you having a cup of coffee with your buddy hanging out, going fishing. We're, we're fellowshipping. That, that's not what the word means, especially here. What he's saying is you and I join together to demonstrate, to live a life of demonstrating and declaring the gospel to the world. That's the partnership Paul is talking about. That's the unity of this church. Okay? All right. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We're just going to look at two verses and we're going to call it a morning or an afternoon. We'll see when we get done. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. All right, so it's just two verses. If you don't know this, I'll tell you now, in antiquity, this is the way they wrote. They opened up with, with the person who's writing the letter. Today, we write a letter, we open up to the person that we're writing it to, and we look at the bottom and we sign it. That's not the way they did it back then, as you can see. Paul opens up with who he is, and, and, and he's not only their, uh, their, their apostle, which he is, but their, his pastor, his church planter. But look how he opens up, more importantly, what does he call himself here? Servants. Servants of Christ Jesus. With Timothy, my son in the faith. He writes a letter to Timothy in the pastoral epistles. Now the word servant, as he identifies himself, not church planter, not pastor, not, not, not apostle. We're servants, doulas, slaves of Christ. That's the proper translation, I believe. Slaves. That's, but we want to get away from that because we don't understand what a slave was in the New Testament compared to. We get, we get all kinds of wrong ideas. But I'm a slave of Christ. He had no rights, no personal privileges. They had to repress and subject themselves to the master's wishes. A slave was bound to another person. But family, there is no other metaphor that conveys so clearly the total claim that God has on lives of those who love and trust him, whom he has loved first. Paul takes this negative term, slaves, and turns it into something positive with humility and submissiveness. There's, there's a dignity and appreciation wrapped into this word that he was just willing and, and, and happily and loyally bound. I'm a slave of Christ. Let me remind you, Paul wasn't always a slave to Christ. You read your New Testament, you go back and ask, Paul hated Christ. Paul hated Christ's people. Paul hated the church. Paul persecuted the church. Paul would cast his vote to have people within the church murdered. But then he came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He would later write this, and I think he's talking about himself. When he, when he met Jesus in that bright light, shined and knocked him off his horse. He would write to the church of Corinth. He would say this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, shined out of darkness into his heart. And it gave him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Face to face with Christ. Everything changes. Everything changes. Paul fulfilled his calling. Paul is now a missionary who loves the church, who loves Jesus. Paul served as Christ's slave. Paul humbly served Jesus. Why? Because Jesus humbly served you. Do you know that? Whoever will be great among you must be servants of all. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? To give his life as a ransom for many. Family, could you today, this morning, right now, how you live your life, would you be able to say, I am a slave to Christ? I'm a slave to Christ. Do you know that you are either a slave to sin, bound to hell, or a slave to Christ and bound to heaven? There's no in between. 
Jesus said, and he who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's one of the greatest paradoxes of the faith. That one can never be totally free until one is completely submissive. A slave to Christ. Romans tells us that Paul, Paul writing Romans said, he's been set free from what? Sin. And now a slave to righteousness. And those who enter into the service of righteousness, slaves to Christ, truly understand liberty, freedom from sin. Not that we don't sin, but we're not bound by it. We, we're not in, it's not, has its mastery over us. Paul and Timothy, willing and humble slaves of Christ. To, look at it goes on, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, to all the saints. That word saint is where we get that word holy, get our word sanctified. The Old Testament people were, were, were God's chosen holy nation. They were service unto him. They were, they were, they were separate from the world taken out from the world as God's people, and then sanctified, set apart for God's glory. Set apart from sin, set apart for God's glory. And the same is true of the New Testament saint. He's talking to everyone here, to all the saints. Verse 4, my prayers are with you all. Verse 7, I feel this way about y'all, if you're from the South, y'all. Verse 7, y'all partakers. Verse 8, how I learn for you all, I yearn for all y'all, all y'all. With affection for Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? Lydia, you know that, that woman, that, that bankroll of the church, that, that special, precious lady, businesswoman, she's a saint. You know that demon-possessed girl who's been set free is a saint. You know that prison guard who likes to beat prisoners? They don't do that, but to beat prisoners? You're a saint. Now, I don't know what tradition you come from, but a saint is not someone who has some sort of earned their right to be saints, set apart. No, they've been set apart by not what they do, but what Christ has done for them. That's what makes the saints. They've been set apart, sanctified, confess and repent of sin, and become Christ's followers. These weren't dead saints, somehow canonized. They were living saints who belonged to God. That's why, look what it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, their union with him. It's not what you do, it's what Christ has done. Christ is the only one. Through faith in him, through his death and resurrection, he's the only one that can set us apart from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the beloved kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption of sins. It's only through faith. You've got to understand that. It, it, we should be growing in holiness, but our holiness doesn't make us a saint. God does. God does. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, who all the saints, all the believers, all those who have been set apart from sin, all those who have been set apart for God's glory with overseers and deacons. You know what he's doing? He's saying, look, all the saints, but I know there are, there are two offices within the church. I want to recognize their leaders, the overseers and the deacons, the akonos, the, the overseers, the, the episkopos, the, the epi overseer, skopos, to see. Those who, who feed the flock, who care for the flock, who love the flock, who feed and protect and provide oversight and leadership to the flock. I'm talking to you with the overseers. Not, not that they are separate, but they are together as one body with overseers and deacons, those who serve the church. There are at least three ways the word deacon, servant is used in the New Testament. All of us are called to serve. All of us are servants of Christ, slaves of Christ. We have to serve one another. All of us. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 7 says that there are special gifts to the body. People have spiritual gift of service. We're all to serve, and there are some that have the special spiritual gift of service. Then the third, per, the third word that's used here is that office, that role, that responsibility within the church to serve the body of Christ with leadership skills. That's what we find here. We saw that early in Acts chapter 6. There, the apostles were, were, every time they got together to, to, to study the word and to pray for the congregation, they get knocked on the door. Who's there? They open up, listen, the people aren't eating. This group is against that group. And like, look, this is the fifth time you knocked on the door in like two hours. We're trying to get stuff done here. We love you. We love them. Let, let's get seven men who can help serve the church and, and help us and assist the elders to get back into the word and back into the oversight. That's what deacons do. That's what our deacons do here. 
Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, happily, joyfully, humbly, humbly worshiping Christ slaves. All the saints, all those who have been set apart. Overseers, leaders, overseers, teachers, preachers of the word and servants of the church. Verse 2, the blessing from God. And we'll close. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul uses two common words here, a Greek term and a Jewish term, right? And he does it in, in perfect order. What do you expect, right? One must have grace in order to have peace. Grace is, 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 is doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Grace is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved love of God. It is the act of which we see in the cross right, that Jesus steps out of glory, steps down, takes on human flesh, dies upon a cross, takes on the guilt and penalty of our sin. Undeserved, unmerited. Peace, shalom, spiritual, emotional, psychological well-being and wholeness. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. The result is peace with God. See what he says here? We've been reconciled to God through Jesus' death. We have gained this peace from God because of the grace of God. Listen, we are not by nature at peace with God. The Bible says we're an enemy to God. We're at enmity with God. God is holy. We are sinners. That does not make for a good relationship. But Jesus is that bridge. He dies in our place. He rises from the dead. He brings us into right relationship with the Father. That's why it says grace to you and peace, what? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace only with the Prince of Peace. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, justified by faith, that's by grace alone, we have peace with God. Through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And, Paul writes, we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see why it's so important. Just give me two more minutes. You see why it's so important that joy, gospel joy, can only be received, pursued, and sustained as we delight in the work and the person of Jesus. As we see others, people coming to delight and receive and pursue satisfaction in Jesus. So let me end with this question to y'all. Okay, let me end with this question. What are some, you don't have to shout it out loud. I got, I got a couple things here. What are some of the culprits of lost joy? Think about that this week. You can talk about it in your community group. What are some of the culprits of lost, lost joy? Circumstances? Maybe, maybe things that you can't control is a culprit of lost joy. Maybe people? What they do and don't do, what they say and don't say, is a culprit of lost joy. Things, stuff you thought you'd have that you don't have. Worry, worry, a culprit of lost joy. Do you know this morning that joy can be the culprit of lost joy? Like, come on, yeah. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus gets his 72 disciples together and he sends them out with authority. He sends them out and he says, listen, go preach the gospel. I'm giving you power, authority over demons. You guys just go. And they go to cities and villages and they're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. Ministry is going. Demons are exercised. I mean, it is great. They come back and they say to Jesus, we, it says in chapter 10, verse 17 of Luke, the 72 returned to tell Jesus all that was going on, man. They wanted, they had this faithful, amazing ministry. They're pumped up. All excited. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall from lightning. I, I get that. Behold, I gave you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I did that for you. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name are written in heaven. Listen, Jesus is saying, look, stop being happy. I want you all depressed. 
Stop that smile, knock it off. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying rejoice in the ministry. not saying that. He's saying that they should not rejoice in the spiritual power, in the ministry, their primary foundational rejoicing. What takes priority over that is the gospel. Your names are written in heaven. Pursue and sustain joy in this world will fall. But satisfaction, delight in Jesus, our good God, the joy of the gospel, the hope of the gospel will sustain them. Listen, those people that got saved are going to die. Even the earth in which they walked on is going to be done. But Jesus Christ and the gospel is eternal. Is eternal. Jesus says, take your name, take take your attention off of that and put it on that which will last. You know, the band the band can come on up. Let me let me just as they get ready, let me just say this last thing. Jesus makes this incredible claim on the night of his death, on the night he was betrayed, on on the night before he died on the cross. He's in the upper room, and he gathers his disciples, and he wants them to know that, that, you know, the darkness is looming. I'm going to the cross. I'm leaving you. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be crucified. But, But I don't want you to lose the joy of God. I don't want you to lose the joy of God. He wants them to have not just joy. He wants them to have his joy in them. And this is what he says. And he says it twice on that night. He says it twice. Chapter 15, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Chapter 17, verse 13, upper room again. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy Fulfilled in themselves. So family, the question for us as we look at this and the foundation of gospel joy is where does your joy come from? Can you experience joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hurting, in the midst of circumstances, maybe not going your way? You can because your joy must be rooted in, foundational in Jesus and the gospel. Even in the midst of hurting, even in the midst of suffering, you can have joy if we have our eyes upon him. Father, thank you for that truth. It is so hard in the times that we face today. But God, we pray as a church family that you will help us to experience gospel joy in the midst of confusion, in the midst of worry, in the midst of uncertainty, and whatever's going in our lives, Lord, that you are our God. You saved us. You set us apart. Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead. And now as your children, there is nothing, no nothing that can come our way that surprises you that you will not use for your glory and our joy. Nothing. So help us, Lord, to see that this week and respond in a way that brings honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.